miss the show, no problem, on point and on the podcast, the follow from this pandemic election. Will Aaron O'Toole stay on as leader or are the knives out already being sharpened? How does a conservative actually win in today's progressive climate? And now that Jagmeet Singh holds the balance of power, what big spending will Trudeau have to bend on to hold on to his power? And will Trudeau's reelection bring in that censorship bill they tried to ram through before this snap election? We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about how one of China's richest real estate developers could bring economic hardship to the world in what's being compared to a Lehman Brothers bubble collapse. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. We don't get fooled again. You are sending us back to work with a clear mandate to get Canada through this pandemic and to the brighter days ahead. My friends, that's exactly what we are ready to do. Clear mandate, what is the color of the sky in Justin Trudeau's world? Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, September 21st. Here we go, batting down the hatches. Not sure if it's uh, starting in your area, but of course, Mother Nature is going to unleash a lot of water tonight. And you can already feel it in the air, and it's already started uh, to come down here in, Tor- in Toronto. So, uh, do what I did. The one thing I did remember to do today was clear my water drains to avoid any flooding. Certainly a good thing that the rain didn't happen on election day or this whole thing, this whole election would have been a complete washout. What the hell was that? Did we get fooled again? You absolutely better believe we did. We just spent $610 million on a blatant power grab. And what do we have to show for it? What do we have? All, all I got was a mini cowbell, and I didn't even get to ring it because there was nothing to celebrate <laughs> where I was. It was a very, very long night at the O'Toole headquarters, and um, I was pretty much the only one ringing the bell because uh, in no way are we any further ahead than we were before. We just spent 36 days listening to garbage wedge attacks during an election that failed to move the political dial. And if you ask me, has left this country deeply angered and quite divided. And I was driving home from Oshawa in the wee hours of the morning, and I listened to Trudeau's speech because I wanted to see if he'd actually show any contrition. And I, I think someone might want to tell him what the word is because it's clear he's never heard of it. You know, did, did he not see the anger during the campaign, let alone the results of the vote? Because... What Trudeau said in his acceptance speech in no way reflects actual reality. He didn't get a clear mandate. His vote went down for a third consecutive election. He got 31.8% of the vote. That's less than what he won in 2019. It's the smallest amount of votes any winning party in this country's history has gotten. And yet there he is boasting about getting a clear mandate to push through all these progressive policies no one even talked about during the campaign because, of course, all we got uh, was uh, just a barrage of useless attacks on guns, abortion, vaccine mandates, and Stephen Harper. So far be it that Trudeau should show any humility. In fact, 
he didn't even try to use his celebration speech as an opportunity to expend an all, uh, extend an olive branch for any kind of unity. Some have talked about division, but that's not what I see. That's not what really? I've seen these past weeks across the no? country. I see hmm. Canadians standing together. Hmm. Really? You see any Canadians standing together in unity for the last 36 days? I didn't. Did Trudeau not see any of the polling showing 70% of Canadians were pissed about this election? I mean, does he think those Canadians who were stuck in lines for hours across the province of Ontario, any, you, know, you think they're any happy, happier today after learning that the winner had been declared before they even got a chance to cast their ballot? Do you think they're going to exercise their democratic right the next time? I don't think so. Do you think any province west of Ontario is feeling great today? No, they're seething. Because once again, they didn't matter. They had no voice. So Trudeau may not see an issue, but his vanity elections only further bungled by Elections Canada. Uh, certainly just polarized an electorate that likely feels more jaded today. And so instead of extending an olive branch to them, Trudeau just said in his speech, uh, time to move on, folks. No, no need to... You know, talk about the election anymore. No need to justify or apologize for the $612 million we pretty much threw out the window. No, it's just onward and upward, I guess. The takeaway for Justin Trudeau Monday night should have been that Canadians are going to keep you on a short leash. And he barely got the win. If it weren't for the vote split for Aero Tool, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have won but O'Toole just couldn't seal that deal. And he did win the popular vote, but his progressive big blue tent clearly failed to punch through because all we saw was this big wave of red in the 416 and the 905. And yet the spin certainly at the campaign headquarters Monday night was, we won. A few months ago, I told conservatives that our party needed the courage to change because Canada has changed. Over the past 36 days, we have demonstrated to Canadians that we've set out on a path to engage more Canadians in our conservative movement. One that addresses is the challenges of today while advancing the dreams of tomorrow. Ours is a conservatism that dwells not in the past, but learns from it to secure the future. Bottom line is, losing is not winning, unless, of course, you're the NDP. And if the Conservatives cannot be a, a scandal-plagued, black-faced, banana-down-his-pants liar now, uh, then when? I mean, they should have won the blackface election, but if you can't then win this one with all the extra failures on Trudeau's record, when are you going to beat him? You know, O'Toole's, I get it. He had to tack to the center to get a bigger base. But the strategy of not being your dad's conservative party, frankly, angered a huge part of the base that do like their dad's conservative party. And there's nothing wrong with that. And they shouldn't be condemned for that. So does he survive? O'Toole certainly wants the chance. He made that very clear both in his speech and when he was questioned about it today by reporters. But... It's going to come down to how sharp the knives are that are 
absolutely being sharpened as we speak. Which brings us to Maxime Bernier, who can claim he's a disruptor. But there certainly wasn't a revolution. There was no purple wave because he failed to get any seats in his second attempt. But he was a, a ripple of disruption in this election. But the only point his supporters made comes without any actual power. So you got to ask yourself, what was the point other than to give Trudeau yet again another undeserved victory? The good news is, at least, um, I'll have lots to talk about for the next couple of years. And with a minority government, Justin Trudeau can't hide his party's corruption or all the other scandals still waiting to be exposed. So there is at least that benefit, which then comes down to the NDP, which barely moved the dial. Um, but Jagmeet Singh now holding the cards again, and he can push for his big spending agenda because Trudeau's got little choice but to play well with others. So we'll go through all of this. Lots to bring through uh, to you tonight. Um, we will talk about Elections Canada. Did they fail Canadians? I think so. I think they've got some explaining to do. If they couldn't hold a proper vote in an election and get people through the polls, then they should have said, we can't do this. Trying is not an option in an election. That's how you lose trust in the process. So we'll talk about that, and uh, we'll talk about what this new mandate will bring, because it's not just going to mean big further spending on the left uh, on things like childcare and pharmacare, increased taxes, but remember that little censorship bill, C-10? That, too, will likely be pushed on through. Was the point worth it for that? I guess we'll see. So if you heard Aaron O'Toole's speech, uh, there was no olive branch to Justin Trudeau. He went all in and put his party on notice that he's gearing up for the next election. The question then becomes, will his party stay with him or is he on it alone? Um, you know, how does the conservative party win if they just can't admit that they're conservatives and if you can't be a scandal-plagued government? So what happens now? Does Mr. O'Toole deserve a second chance? Can he get that second chance? I challenge the prime minister to put the unity of this country and the well-being of its people first. And I told him, if he thinks he can threaten Canadians with another election in 18 months, the Conservative Party will be ready. And whenever that day comes, I will be ready to lead Canada's Conservatives to victory. Thank you, Canada. Let's get to work. There you go. That is Mr. Arnold Toole. And um, all of this assumes that He's going to survive his next fight, which will be an internal battle with his party. Um, and look, Aaron O'Toole defied the critics. He ran a pretty good campaign, better than most expected. He was able to stick handle a lot of the wedge issues thrown at him. Uh, it was really when the Jason Kenney stuff came up that he couldn't maneuver his way around it. And frankly, he should have been able to, but that's when I felt his momentum stopped. And he did get more votes than Mr. Trudeau. He did make some important gains in Atlantic Canada, but it was vote-rich 416905 that stayed a very firm, bright red. So a loss is a loss. Like I said, only a loss is a good thing if you're NDP, because they're okay with that. So the question does, you know, becomes, does he get the chance to lead this party, or will 
changing, you know, dad's conservative party lead to his ousting? Let us ask. Adrian Bacha is the editor-in-chief of Toronto Sun. You're probably going on as much uh, sleep as I am at this point, or lack thereof. Um, what are your thoughts today um, of the tone of his speech, of Aaron O'Toole's speech when he, um, when he talked last night? So it's great to be with you, Alex. Um, I think that when Aaron O'Toole came out last night in the wee hours, most Canadians were already tuned out. The Jays had lost, which is what probably most of us were focused, most Canadians, other than us in the media, were focused on anyway. You know, mm-hmm. he, he, was, he was running on fumes. And that yeah. was not a speech that he he obviously wanted to deliver, but it was one that he needed to say those words to the party faithful. That wasn't to, to the broader public. That was not to the media. That was truly to those inside the party, yeah. the apparatchiks, as it were, that don't start sharpening your knives right away to get rid of me like the way you did to Andrew Scheer. And so it's now, look, there's constitutional issues, Alex, as you know, that the Conservatives have within their own party, uh, an internal caucus vote, and then ultimately a broader party vote at their next convention, which comes right after an election. Um, I don't think that there's a mechanism by which that can be put on pause. And, you know, and there's one thing that Mr. O'Toole is accurate about. There likely a potential election happening in 18 months or so. But now, I mean, how many times have you and I talked about this with, when it comes to the Conservatives? You know, they circle the wagons, they point the guns inward. Yeah, We would probably step back and look at the totality of the campaign and say, well, O'Toole, you know, moved to the centre-right, dragging the party along with him, trying to appeal to the 416 and the 905, but then, you know, we've heard many political conservative uh, strategists who have been involved in many campaigns say it didn't, the gamble didn't pay off. And so he's going to have to pay the price. And that price is with his job as leader. Yeah, I mean, even before the polls closed, his own party's internal team basically admitted they were getting a minority, which was very strange. And then they were running around trying to say, no, no, that's not what we said. But, you know, Aerotool's a decent guy, very accomplished. He ran a, a better campaign than I think his detractors uh, gave him credit for and, and made some gains. But the bottom line is, you know, um, we could go to the polls in the next two years and, frankly, the base is divided um, there are a lot of conservatives who do like their dad's conservative party. There are a lot of people who are really irritated that p- people like Pierre Polyevro were moved out of high, high-ranking positions. So he's got to make peace within his own caucus. And so I suggest that he's going to have to, if he wants to stay, he's going to have to somehow win those Bernier people back, um, you know, those of the conservative stripe anyway, and convince them that um, he is the guy to lead in the next election. But the bottom line is, if he couldn't go to the center and win anything in 416 and 905, and by the way, his strategy was very much like a page out of the Patrick Brown uh, playbook, um, then you know, will he get that chance? There's not a lot of time. There's not, the time is certainly not on his side. That's, that's true. But... You know, and and people may be uncomfortable with this type of language that I'm using, but I'll I'll just be very plain about it. They need to focus on a common enemy. And if the enemy is what they, politically speaking, is, you know, the Trudeau liberals, then they have no choice but to unite 
and to target uh, and set their targets on defeating that enemy. And so this is this is always true of conservatives. You know, we always you and I've talked for so many years about, you know, well, why doesn't, you know, the liberals or the NDP or the left have this dirty laundry aired out in public? Well, most of it is because they figure their stuff out behind the scenes and then they come out united. Conservatives, by virtue of philosophically, you know, are are independent thinking. They're they're not Mm. they're not a collectivist mind. And so you do have those sneaky, secret conversations among certain political operatives that will, conservative political operatives that will talk to certain media and plant stories and say, oh, this, that, and the other thing. And then that starts causing excitement and consternation. We, the conservatives are never going to win a national government un, until, until they, they figure out their own uh, core values. Well, who are well? Who are they? Are they and, conservative, and who, and who or, they are. or are they liberal light? Yeah, like he tried to rebrand the party, okay, but then you couldn't sell it. And and so, look, Stephen Harper ran as a conservative, and he was unapologetic, and and he won. And no one has been able to figure out uh, since then how to do that again. And in the meantime, the liberals have become very sharpened uh, with their attacks, and for whatever reason, these wedge issues still work, uh, and somehow. Uh, the conservatives just can't figure out how to get around it and just stand for something. So uh, I'll give you one, not small example, a small example, but not an insignificant one. And that was with respect to when the issue of guns and gun control yeah, yeah, and yeah. assault weapons came up uh, three weeks, just just actually two weeks ago. It, it was in and around the time, um, I, I think you would probably agree with me, There, a stall was happening with the conservative momentum. Um, yeah. Canadians' first introduction to Aaron O'Toole seemed to be paying off. They liked what he they had to he they he had to say. They liked him. They didn't find him scary or in all these these usual tropes that liberals like to use against conservatives weren't sticking. Um, yeah. There's uh, that notion of hidden agenda. But when it came to that issue of assault weapons, yeah. and there was not a clear answer from from Aaron O'Toole on that. What they could have easily done, in my view, is pivoted to a safety on the streets issue. They didn't capitalize on that. They didn't talk about the record crime and unsolved uh, shootings in cities like Toronto, Vancouver. They didn't bring up Bill Blair's record uh, since they didn't bring up Bill Bill Blair's (sighs) record. And then and then in the last 72 hours of the election, he stopped taking interviews and and and, yeah. and and that and so so a narrative was building, and you could feel it within the liberal campaign. Um, though he broke every rule in the book, you know Justin Trudeau was doing the rallies and he was doing on the ground stuff and he was doing every everything to to have the perception of momentum. Well, it was a very real thing because clearly both parties had gotten some significant internal polling that was showing yeah. and um, a minority indeed but a liberal minority. And so you saw yeah. a little bit of the air deflated out of the O'Toole campaign. Yeah. But you don't stop fighting until the end. And so, you know, there's so many narratives, Alex, that are going to come out of the results of this federal election, not the least of which was the most expensive cabinet shuffle Canada has ever faced. Yeah. You know, a $610 million yeah. cabinet shuffle. And as many of our Sun readers have said, well, at least it was worth making sure that Mary Monsef and her telegraph <laughs> band of brothers got out. 
But is that good yeah, enough for Canada? Is that good enough no. for Canada? I would argue it's not. And so it is not. And I'm up against the clock. I'm on a hard break. Sorry, Batra. Yeah. I'm uh, I, I am up against the break, but I do agree with you. But uh, again, do it again, very expensive. Appreciate your time, Adrian Batra, editor in chief of uh, the Toronto Sun. You are sending us back to work with a clear mandate to get Canada through this pandemic and to the brighter days ahead. And my friends, that's exactly what we are ready to do. Mm, I don't know what they're going to do, because, Mr. Joe, you did not get a clear mandate. <laughs> and you didn't get the majority you so craved. So you're going to have to work with the NDP, which will hold a balance of power. And um, Jagmeet Singh making pretty clear today that if Trudeau is to stay in power, then he'll have to work with them, implementing some of those big-ticket progressive promises, things like pharmacare, childcare, tax the rich. But the other part of this man, I mean, there's all sorts of little things that now can happen now that the liberals will get another chance to push through their agenda is uh, Bill C-10. Yes, the censorship bill, you know, elections and your vote come with a cost. They all come with a cost. And one of the costs of this election could be to our free speech. Let us bring Chris Sims in, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. But we've spent some time together in the last couple of weeks kind of laying out uh, some of the planks that people should watch for and be aware of as they send uh, MPs to Ottawa on their behalf. And um, what's your biggest concern about this? I guess it will be kind of a, a coalition of uh, Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau moving forward for the next little while. Yeah, your. Uh Musical montage opening this uh, <laughs> really nailed it. It's it's the Spendy twins, and yes. so they're going to be in charge of the books. Uh, it reminds me of the cartoon uh, that ran in the newspapers a little while ago that shows uh, Trudeau running around flinging money everywhere, and the the husband saying, "Oh wow, the guy looks really nice, he's very generous," and the wife says, "He's got your wallet." So, <laughs> yeah, he's got our wallets. And uh, so does uh, Mr. Jagmeet Singh. Um, the issue we have with this is that we've seen no fiscal discipline up until now. And so it's not going to change, unfortunately. And for folks who are yelling at the radio or your laptop right now saying, yeah, but COVID. Well, before COVID in 2018, uh, the federal government spent more money in that year than in any one year of the Second World War, Korean War or recessions adjusted for inflation. So they've got a massive spending problem. And now um, it's up to Jugmeet Singh to decide whether or not, yeah, that's a good expenditure. So brace yourselves, folks. Yeah, I mean, inflation obviously rearing its ugly head during yep. the election. And it, twice, um, there was the warning at the beginning of the election when Mr. Uh, Trudeau was asked, uh, you know, what you're going to do about this? And he gave the answer of, well, forgive me if I don't really focus on monetary issues because I'm worried about families, uh, which should have been, I think, the losing moment right there for him. But nonetheless, it came up again because we got another spike of inflation. Those things not factored in at all, barely discussed, but they are going to be huge factors for Canadians who are starting, Chris, to notice that the clean fuel tax, carbon tax, all those things are starting to shoot the price of things like gas and groceries up, but so too will inflation. Absolutely. Um, and it's frankly easy for somebody who hasn't ever had to worry about making rent or how much groceries cost or how much a car costs to breezily say, forgive me if I don't think about monetary policy. Well, 
No, that's unforgivable, actually, because you are the head of a G7 country with a massive... Wouldn't it be nice conflict. to not worry about it? Could you imagine just, like, never having to worry about it? I just can't. Like, oh. I've been working since I was 12. I cannot <laughs> yeah. imagine what that would be like. If I win Lotto Max, I will let you know. Um, but that's what that would be like. And now he's governing, and they return, returned him to another mandate. And to get to the point, um, when he says, I think about families, well, who does he think pays for the monetary policy? So monetary policy doesn't just end in the hallways of economic departments of universities. Monetary policy, it includes uh, inflation. It includes whether or not the Bank of Canada is buying up deficit that that government is running, and they absolutely are. That means that they're printing money to buy the bond mm-hmm. to help cover the mm-hmm. deficit. That, of course, adds, it's not the only factor, but it adds a big chunk to inflation. And inflation yeah. then acts like a hidden tax. We don't get to vote on it. We don't hear about it in the House of Commons, but suddenly it costs you 4% more and way more for you know things like chicken and pork and gasoline. You touched on the carbon tax, Alex. Yeah, uh, by the year 2023... Uh, folks are going to be paying through the nose here. Uh, so here in BC, our second carbon tax is a little bit more expensive than what your guys' is going to be. So mm. your average minivan, it's going to cost you about $20 extra just in the carbon taxes to fill it up. Your average pickup truck, light duty, I'm talking Dodge Ram pickup truck, long box, you see them everywhere, $33 or so extra in the carbon taxes. So that's within the next 18 months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and that's on top of all the other things. And uh, look, I, I, I'm, I'm quite positive that part of this power grab, not only just to bury scandals and get a majority and make sure all those things go go away, was for this government to be able to make sure that they could control what we see as far as um, you know spending and, and hiding some of the costs of pandemic spending and all those things which I think are going to start coming out as we get Auditor General reports and all the rest of it. They won't be able to hide that stuff. And I think uh, when people actually start to really see like... Uh, like where's all this money gone where's it being accounted how are we being accountable um people are going to be asking those questions but the problem for mr trudeau when he's got uh, more than 99 of them uh is that he's got to please jagmeet singh's big spending on things like pharmacare um and and this child care that uh, the trudeau government had six years to put in and still expects that it won't be another six years till it comes in but jagmeet singh is going to want to do these things right away Yeah, he will want to do them right away. Uh, So we could do one of two things. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau can agree with everything and just say, sure, man, let's order pizza. Let's get a limo to bring it. Why not? Which is the attitude Mm -hmm. that has been happening the past six years. Or um, the adults in the room can finally say, folks, party's over. We're turning the taps off uh, and you guys Mm -hmm. can fight about it. And we can go back to another election if need be. Uh, We know it's expensive. Uh, The last one cost $600 million dollars. To put that in perspective, $600 million, here in I BC, we, we could yeah. hire a 1,000 new frontline paramedics full-time Jeez. and pay their salaries for 10 years for wow. how much that just cost. Um, so crazy. it gets grim. To leave people, though, with a sense of hope and positivity, because it is mm-hmm. a minority government, as our friends at Black Locks reporters point out, oh, yes. that means they don't have the majority at committee. That means that we can still compel documents, they can still compel witnesses, we can find out where the bills are coming in, where the bodies are buried, and folks, we need to stay on them, because now it's up to you and me, so the media, advocacy groups, and just average citizens. We need to stay on them, even if you voted for them, even if you're a big fan of Trudeau, even if you're a big fan of Jagmeet Singh, um, we need to stay on them, because it's our money and our kids' money, plus interest in the future. 
So when you're thinking about things you really, really want and it's shiny, don't think about you paying for it. Picture your kids or your nephew or whomever you love who's a kid paying for that plus interest because that's where we're at. We're at negative money now. Yeah, or or just picture someone just pickpocketing uh, your child's, uh, you know, piggy bank. Yeah. Nonetheless, um, the other part of this is, you know, um, and and to to uh, you know punctuate your point, Blacklock's reporter. I mean, they have been fabulous at, at finding yeah. kind of uh, where all all the bodies are buried, and so we'll continue talking to them about that because I'm sure that Winnipeg Lab this. Thing, you know, the issue that the Trudeau government wants to go away the most is still very much going to be in play now. The other thing, though, is Bill C-10. This is something yeah. that the Trudeau government tried to ram through without debate. If for whatever reason, they were absolutely obsessed with getting this done. And it was very problematic for a number of reasons, but no question about it. They're now going to use this new mandate to push this through. And I, I will assume, Chris, they will have the support of the NDP, but there are a lot of uh, troubling parts of this that absolutely should be pushed back on. They need to be. Uh, and if I can just, in a sense, reach across the aisle, even though I'm not in any, in any party here, to my friends on the left, as Ronald Reagan used to put it, um, this will affect you too. Because someday Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will not be Prime Minister. And someday there will be somebody who you perceive as right-wing and or scary in power. Do you want them deciding what you can say on the internet. If the answer is no, then you got to get off your keister and you got to pick up the phone and you have to call your friends in the NDP and you need to say, whoa, we can't do this. Because right now the way that C-10 is worded and the way that the, the next one that's coming, which is another yeah. big one, it's referred to as online harms quite frequently. The way those are worded is that they're going to create an entire wing of bureaucrats similar to the CRTC, appointed by the government, including a czar and a panel, like a tribunal, to decide whether or not what you and I, Alex, post on Facebook is okay. Oh, well, so, you and I will be gone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it will be cancelled. It will be very <laughs> what happened with you and me at Sun News Network, because nobody likes to hear it, and then they turn it off. But I, I, I plead with our friends on the left. Imagine, I'll put you back, 2003 massive protest against the invasion of Iraq or the Iraq war, depending on how you want to put it. That was mostly organized by small L left-wing activists, and it was on the Internet. That's how they organized it. They had more than 10,000 people on Parliament Hill in January. That mm -hmm. would have been shut down by mm -hmm. a prime minister who didn't want to hear it. But it wasn't because we had free speech, and they organized and people showed up. A few weeks later, Prime Minister Kretchen said, we're not going. We're staying home. Do you want that power to be given to a prime minister and his friends? Yeah. First, it's my voice, and then it is yours. And so yeah. one of these, uh, it always sounds good on the surface to get out hate and all these things. It's always the fine print in what uh, you've got to actually read and understand. All right, Chris, I appreciate so much uh, you giving your time during this time. And, of course, we'll bring you back on. Listeners love you. Thanks so Thank much. You. Thank you. That is Chris Sims, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I love Chris because she's able to break things down and give you that um, perspective of, okay, never thought about it that way, just kind of dumbing things down uh, to the clean and easy way of reading them. So while we were all consumed in Monday's election, financial markets around the world were sinking faster than the Titanic, having one of the worst days in months and or years. And it's all thanks to one of China's biggest real estate developers. This is a behemoth builder that is on the brink of collapse. 
And you wonder, so why would we be affected by a Chinese developer? Well, this is a company that employs over 200,000 people. It's created about 3.8 million jobs in construction and spin-off industries. But this is a company that's on the brink of defaulting on $300 billion in debt in a matter of days. And if the air comes out of this balloon, this Chinese behemoth is being compared to the Lehman Brothers crash that we saw in 2008. So it could have ripple effects throughout the world. Ian Lee, of course, you know him as the Associate Professor over at Scrott School of Business at Carleton University. Good to have you, Ian. Uh, my great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. This is a company that bought up you know, huge plots of land from local governments. It built itself into this massive development uh, company um, and essentially over the years got so big it, it created itself a bubble. But how did it come to the brink uh, of collapse and why do we care here and why would it affect North America? I'm not so sure. I'll go in reverse order. Uh, I'm not so sure that it is going to affect. I mean, yes, there's the initial panic of, oh my goodness, this is a monstrously huge company. It could fail. I'll get with it to that in a moment. I don't think it will. I think the government of China is going to intervene to stop that from happening. But I, I don't, yes, the markets are responding immediately, panicking, because they don't know the full extent of the involvement of North American investors in this company. I think it's very small. The record will show. So I don't think that we have too much to worry about. To your larger question, it shows the Problems that I've been talking about for, my goodness, five years or more. I've been teaching in China once a year in an MBA mm. program since 1997. Love going to China. I have great Chinese students, very disciplined, smart people. Uh, but this shows all of the problems are becoming explicit of a centrally controlled, top-down country economy. Whether you want to, I don't have to use pejorative terms or loaded terms, communism. It's, it's a top-down, a big brain at the top makes the big decisions. And so it's highly centralized as contrasted to the market economies of the West, which are highly decentralized. That's not propaganda. Uh, President mm. Biden or the prime minister doesn't sit there and sit in on the board governor meetings of each real estate developer in Canada, or he doesn't have his minions sitting in, sitting in on the meetings or on the, every meeting of every you know, technology company. They're highly decentralized. You know, universities are decentralized. Hospitals are decentralized. Radio media, you are decentralized. There's nobody mm -hmm. telling you what to write or say or do or talk about. In the Chinese model, and it was the model of the Soviet Union, which is why it failed, was that it believed that a centralized, top-down decision-making system was superior to a bottom-up decentralized system. And I've been arguing, well, pretty well much of my adult life since I started teaching there, when I saw up close and personal in the former centrally planned economies. I first taught in uh, Poland in 1991, two years after the wall came down. And then I saw up close and personal the actual concrete, not textbook, not theory, failures of central planning. And so to your question, what, what's happened here is there's so many distortions in a centrally planned economy. You can't do this, you can't do this, you can't buy this, you can't buy that that it creates a highly, even though they are a quasi-market economy because of the reforms of 1993 by Deng Xiaoping, who I consider the real father of China, not Mao Zedong. He messed up China big time badly. Was Deng Xiaoping, this little four-foot-ten guy, amazing guy, lived in 95, smoked like a chimney, and he lived in 95. <laughs> and it really did. It was amazing. And he was brilliant. 
and he was the one that opened up China and transformed China. But then what happened in the years after Xi, uh, sorry, uh, Deng Xiaoping passed away and left uh, office was that the cadre of the Communist Party started to come back and reassert its control. And now Xi is trying to control, he's really centralizing control, regulating technology companies, right. regulating yeah. what males can appear on Chinese television. They've got to be mm-hmm. masculine enough and so on. It's just ridiculous. And, and where I'm going with this is that this company was, uh, people are speculating because they have so few avenues to invest their money because, again, it's a centrally planned, controlled economy. And, and they did the classic overexpansion. And they over-diversified into other areas. And then on top of all that, very quickly, just to finish this off, I think that they've created a bubble, a real bubble. Not, not the bubble that we claim we have in Canada. In Canada, Canadians are buying houses to live in. Right. Now, yes, there's right. a shortage because our municipalities, the GTA in Vancouver and the city of Ottawa, have deliberately engineered a shortage because they're against urban sprawl, which is their pejorative negative green environmental claim about population growth, but it's gone up because of shortages, not because there's a bubble. The housing prices have gone up because we're not making enough houses. In China, what's happened is there's a genuine bubble. People are buying more houses than are needed. There's ghost buildings. I've seen them with my eyes in Shanghai, driving by a building at night, a 50-story apartment building, and there's no lights on in the building, and the building's completely built, and there's no lights on because there's nobody living there. That's, that's a bubble when you build too many houses. They've got almost the opposite problem of the Canadian problem. We've got too few. They've got too many. And now the chickens are coming home to roost for this company, and it can't sell off its unsold inventory because there's too much on the market. Right. And so it'll be up to the China gov- Chinese government, which uh, up until now has yet to do anything, but certainly uh, might step in at the last minute, but certainly goes to show you how integrated uh, we are, um, you know, certainly with China, uh, their economy, and what goes wrong when things go wrong there. Um, It can create real pandemonium. It can. Um, can. I'm not discounting that. I don't want you to think I'm saying that there's no impact here. I think the impact is more psychological than it is economic, real economic, because they don't have a lot of investments. There aren't a lot. There isn't a lot of Western capital in this uh, company and in, in in this company, it, it's going to so have then. A why did we see such China. a right? So then, why did it rattle world markets so much? Well, I think first off, China is the second largest economy on the planet Earth, and and remember that famous line by Pierre Elliott Trudeau, one the one of the few lines I like to quote because it was accurate. And he said, you know, living next door to the elephant, uh, uh, you know, is like um, you know the mouse uh, when the elephant catches uh, sneezes, the mouse catches pneumonia. Same idea. China is so enormous that if there is a, uh, 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 when I say a meltdown, let's say that there's a uh, deep economic decline in China, that will have an impact on all of us because our economies are that integrated. So it won't be this real estate company per se that's causing the problem in you know North American markets. If if it if it triggers an economic recession, a collapse of some sort in China, that would reverberate around the world simply because of the scale, the size of China. Just so quick numbers, because I'm a numbers guy. China's over 15 trillion GDP U.S. dollars. The U.S. is 23 trillion. The U.S. is still the largest. China's the second largest. So China's about seven times larger GDP than Canada. And we're a very yeah. large, even though we have a small population, I think we're the 10th largest economy in the world. So what are we watching for them? 
I think what we're going to see, because Xi is uh, not uh, not a shy to step in and flex his muscles and uh, and exercise more control. Uh, behind the scenes, all the reports are that they are already exercising all kinds of control, and there will be. They don't want to do a bailout because they're trying to wind down the bubble. They're trying to scale it down, but there will be some sort of support. They won't call it a bailout. Uh, but there will be some sort of, I believe, uh, government involvement by the government of China to resolve the crisis that will involve winding down this company and save. It. They've already said they're going to save harmless, meaning that's an old phrase in banking. They'll make sure that anybody who bought a condo that doesn't have it in their possession will be. They'll get their money back, or they'll get the the, the department that they bought. So they're going to look after the consumers. But there's going to be, I believe, there's going to be some investors uh, that invest in this company. They're going to take a big haircut, big losses. Jeez, no kidding. Yeah, big, big, big. All right, well, we'll watch for that, Mr. Lee. Very much appreciate your time. I'm out of time on that one. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. And that is Ian Lee, professor over at Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, joining us now. So we'll watch for that. There were real fears that that could affect us, but uh, hopefully... He is right and it will not. Thanks for tuning in. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio. 